I'm really excited about this passage of Scripture because Abel is not an individual that we really typically know a whole lot about. And we haven't really studied the person Abel or uh, examined carefully his faith, what made his faith so exemplary, what made his faith so powerful. Um, we're going to look at three characters, three people, three individuals uh, in the next few, week, few weeks, Lord willing. Um, as we go through verses 4 down to verse 7, we're going to look at Abel, we're going to look at Enoch, and we're going to look at Noah. And with each one of these individuals, we're going to highlight a different aspect of their character and of their faith, because that is really what's being underscored here, is the character and nature of their faith. And so this is part one of what I want to entitle a series of studies on the power of primitive faith. The power of primitive faith, because we are dealing with such an ancient uh, text and such an ancient uh, period of redemptive history going all the way back to the pre-patriotic period of time in redemptive history. So really fascinating uh, 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 section of Scripture. But let's, uh, let's read uh, the verse one more time and then we will pray and we will begin. Let's, pray, let's uh, read this uh, together, beginning uh, just verse 4. It's all we're covering, verse 4. It says this, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again for your help and your blessing. We pray that you would bless us as we hear your word, as we preach your word, as we speak your word to one another, as we listen to your word, as we take your word in and imbibe it into our souls that it would have that purifying influence in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Father, we confess that our souls and our lives are constantly being influenced by things that are less than praiseworthy. And so, Father, we are, um, we are excited and we are thankful and we are grateful that we can have our souls nourished by the pure milk of the Word of God. So we pray you build us up. Build up your church now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In each one of these individuals, what we're going to find is that there are distinguishing marks of various things. Let me just give you where I'm going for the next few weeks. We're going to look at the the marks of true worship, true devotion, and true obedience. Very simple. That's one of the things that's so glorious about chapter 11 is that it is laid out for us in a very simplistic way. All of it is to uh, sort of motivate us as believers to maintain our faith in the, in the midst of the new covenant. Uh, the, the new covenant has ushered in unspeakable, glorious promises to us. Uh, the work of Christ, our, our high priest, the work of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood, his sacrificial work, uh, his reward, uh, his, 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 the reward that he promises to give us our eternal inheritance, all of these glorious things that have been set out for us in the new covenant must be maintained by faith. And therefore, 
Faith is the ultimate component in the Christian life. Uh, you know that the devil works around the clock, nonstop, in the attempt, like a roaring lion, in the attempt to devour your faith, to get you to stumble, to get you to doubt, to get you to regress and to go backwards in your Christianity versus going forward. If the devil can get you into a state of immaturity, then he's got you right where he wants you. If he can get you into a state of unbelief, then he has you right, right where, he, where he wants you. If he can get you to, uh, as we saw from chapter 10, if he can get you out of the way of the means of grace, if he can get you out of fellowship, out of church, out of accountability, away from uh, the influence of the Word of God and the sacraments and the, and the, um, the means of grace, of prayer, of fellowship, of, of evangelism, of, 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 of reading and devotional studying of the Word of God, all these things. And the enemy has you right where he wants you. But this chapter is written for us so that we, like the men and women of old, might gain approval by our faith, which is to say that we will be recognized as those men and women that have genuine saving faith. And that is evidenced by a life of obedience. Now, looking at worship. I want to zero in on the concept of worship because as you can see in verse 4 here, that really is what's happening. It is Abel offering up worship to God. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Well, that is obviously the context of worship. And by faith, it was a demonstration that he was righteous. Notice that's what it says. He obtained the testimony that he was righteous. But again, it was more than just an outward vindication of Abel's character. It was also... uh the definitive affirmation of genuine salvation. In other words, that he was saved, that he was an actual Christian. That, that language might alarm some of you, but I believe that the first Christian was uh, Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, what is a Christian? Somebody who is chosen by God, saved by God, redeemed by God in and through the work of Jesus Christ. That is a Christian. And that's why the theologians, they speak of the elect church of God from all ages, going all the way back to men like Abel. God was the one giving witness. Notice it says that too. God was testifying about his gifts. And furthermore, uh, Abel and his faith is also commendable in the fact that he left us a legacy. Notice that through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So three things here, three of these, and they're very basic and they're very obvious, but we dare not underestimate the potency of this primitive prophet of God and his simple faith that he had now what is the kind of god or what is the kind of worship that god affirms what are the distinguishing marks of worship that's true worship genuine worship biblical worship i want to examine or i want to observe three things from this example of abel number one genuine or true worship is rooted in saving faith you may think that that is just such a simple observation. By saving faith, I mean genuine salvation. Uh, I'll never forget reading through the very famous book by Charles Spurgeon, Lecture to My Students. The very first chapter is entitled The Minister's Watch. 
And what he exhorts pastors that are in his pastor's college, the very first thing that he exhorts them to be is to be real Christians. Can you imagine that? I mean, he's exhorting pastors. You would think, well, if pastor's not a Christian, then no one's a Christian, right? Well, I remind you of another great saint of old, and that is John Wesley. Well, his theology may not be so great, but he did some great things for the Lord. But John Wesley went to seminary, was an evangelist, was preaching the gospel, was preaching in the church, was ministering in the church, and he was not saved. It wasn't until later that Wesley went on to have a genuine conversion. He still had all the while while he was ministering, while he was a student in seminary getting his degree in theology. He still had the terror of the Lord. He still feared the judgment of God. He knew he was under the wrath of God. You can have all the externals. I remember working with a gentleman. We were in a construction company, and he was a really smart guy. Um, he was in construction, so he had a really, really terrible mouth, terrible language. Um, and I, I remember I gasped when he told me that he was either going to get into something like, um, you know, like managing a, a construction company, or he also, the other option was for him to become a minister. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> you, a minister? He said, yeah, it's all about the numbers. He just looked it up online. He saw how much ministers typically make throughout American evangelicalism. He thought, you know, I could be a Methodist minister at a liberal United Methodist church. They don't really expect a whole lot from you. A lot of times they give you a house and every, uh, housing and everything. I thought, boy, isn't that a sad testimony? Uh, but that's the reality. Reality is, is that much of what's done in the name of Christ and Christianity is done from a place of false faith. Where people are not even genuinely saved. I say true worship begins when it is rooted in saving faith because we must remember that God has no pleasure in the prayers of the wicked. That is to say that an unsaved person has no capacity to love God, to commune with God, to worship God, to render anything to God that is pleasing to Him. According to the Bible, they're dead in sin. According to the Bible, they're God's enemies. According to the Bible, they are hostile in mind. According to the Bible, they are an enmity with God because they're not saved. Therefore, we must be saved men and women if we are going to give God true worship. God understands this. He always understood this. He, if you look back, for example, I can read to you Amos chapter 5, that God has always identified and rejected perfunctory worship. That is worship that is only um, duty-bound. Worship that is only done as a rote ritual that really has no heart in it. You're just sort of doing it by going through the motions, but really your heart is totally detached. There's no actual life of God in the soul of man. God is not a stranger to this kind of worship. Amos chapter 5 says this, Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings, your grain offerings... I will not accept them. Isn't it amazing? Uh, the burnt offering, the grain offering, these are all forms of worship that God had actually stipulated in the law. And these folks were actually doing what was stipulated in the law. But God says, I will not accept any of them. He says, I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Isn't that amazing? You can bring to God this impressive offering and He won't accept it. 
He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. You know, so much worship today, worship music that is, is done with a perfunctory heart. In other words, a heart that is dead, a heart that is false, a pretentious heart, a heart that is hypocritical. I was appalled to see that at the Gay Christian Conference, popular, very well-known and famous evangelical worship leaders were leading worship under the guise of homosexual Christianity. Uh, these are these would be people that you would recognize. Uh, these are people uh, that that you may even have on the playlist of some of your iTunes. As a matter of fact, in recent times, there has been a complete caving in by the worship scene in the evangelical church with respect to the gospel, because homosexuality is a gospel issue. Uh, this is not simply an optional lifestyle for Christians. Uh, but think about it. I, I just kind of made a list of the different people that have fallen prey to this. Jars of clay have made completely compromising statements on the issue of homosexual marriage. Vicki Beeching completely apostatized into homosexuality openly. Uh, David Webb from, or Derek Webb from Cademan's Call has also uh, been engaged in celebrating this lifestyle and using his gifts to further uh, that li- that uh, that lifestyle and many 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 other Christian artists who have thousands of people coming to their concerts listening to their music. Vicky Beeching is still singing Christian worship songs under the banner of an open lesbian lifestyle. Do you think God has any regard whatsoever for the sound of that music? Do you think God cares about the sophistication of that synthesizer that they're using? Or how talented that guitar player is? Or how amazing the lighting is? Or how impressive the the fog machine that they're using is? Or how many thousands of people are sitting there lifting their hands up to Jesus, praising and weeping to Jesus, all the while completely offering up false worship. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Israel um, often did this. They had outposts in the days of Israel where they had shrine after shrine after shrine that God did not, matter of fact, God did not even justify them having shrines outside of Jerusalem. And those shrines became so syncretistic. You know what syncretism means? It means that you've meshed with the world. The ancient shrines of Israel, like at Bethel, became so syncretistic that the people of God couldn't even tell anymore the difference between Baal worship and Yahweh worship. It became almost indistinguishable to the people. Incredible. Amos chapter 2 actually records that very thing. They didn't know whether to call God Yahweh or Bali. Incredible. That's exactly what's going on today, and that's exactly why God rejects false worship. Jesus said it the best. As he's quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of man. Be not deceived. What stands behind today's totally 
compromised evangelical worship industry that ranks in the multi, multi, multi millions, if not billions of dollars, is a compromise of theology. It always goes back to theology. You may want to say that theology is divisive. You may want to say that theology divides people. But Jesus says it has to do with doctrine, teaching. By their fruit, they make the commandments of God null and void. Just amazing. It is so important that we understand this, that what God wants from us is genuine worship that is rooted in genuine salvation. Why do you have so much false worship everywhere? It's because you have a lot of false salvation. Churches employing people on the worship team who are not even saved, employing them because they can play an instrument. Yanking them off of off of a website of musicians, taking them off of Craigslist or whatever, just because they can play a violin or a flute or they can play the drums or they can run the keyboard, irrespective of their spiritual status. This is completely false. And it's completely abhorrent to God. I can't tell you enough about this. He goes on to tell Israel and Amos that he hates their solemn assemblies. He hates it. Hypocritical worship is the worst thing that anyone can offer God. But Abel did not offer God hypocritical worship. Abel offered God pure worship, true worship. He offered a sacrifice that was superior to Cain's because it was rooted in genuine faith. We'll see more of this. Second thing is this. True worship is that which is commended by God. And... On this point, I want to just draw out a few implications. Number one, what does God commend in worship? Number one is that God commends sincerity in worship. I wrote myself a little note in a commentary I was studying this week, and I wrote on the side there, based on something the commentary was saying, I said something very simple but very profound, and it's just it hit me and it never left me, and I put down, God knows your heart. It's that simple. God knows your heart. God knows everything about your heart. God knows whether your heart is pure or not. The psalmist says in one in Psalm 139, uh, search my heart, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. He knows if our heart is devoted to him or not. Remember Peter, Lord, I love you. Tend my lambs. Lord, he 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 says he says he says ultimately to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. After Peter kept trying to impress Jesus with his love for him, Jesus kept pressing him until he got the answer that he really wanted, which was a a, a answer of total, complete, transparent surrender. Lord, you know everything. That's all I got. He brought him to a place where he understood, I'm a worm. I'm du- Without you, I am dust and ashes. Lord, you know, you know who I really am. You know what I'm really capable of. I mean, remember, this is coming right out of Peter denying the Lord, the Lord with cursings, denying that he even knew who Jesus was. And now here he is trying to impress Jesus with his love for him again. Please, Peter. The safest thing is for you to tell the Lord, you know everything. You know who I really am. 
He knows whether or not we love Him with an undevoted heart as in Kings where the King was to be a man who was fully devoted to the Lord. God knows if our heart is divided, that's why Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate the one, love the other. He knows if our hearts are filled with doubt. James tells us in James chapter 1, let the man who doubts not think that he will receive anything from God. Amazing. And he knows ultimately if our heart is false. You remember what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, beware, brethren, lest there is a, a, a evil, unbelieving heart in you departing from the living God. See, it's all about the heart. Worship is all about the heart. Praise God that we just partook of the Lord's Supper. But let me just take advantage of that by saying, when we take the Lord's Supper, this is a time for self-examination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 says that this is the time that we should examine ourselves. And so therefore, when you know the elements are about to be passed out, this is a time for personal reflection. This is a time to, 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 to shore up your accounts with God. And I would say even before you come to the church and you know you're going to partake and you know you're going to handle the elements in your hands, make sure your heart is pure and clean. Repentance. What a gift. Through repentance, we can make things right with God. The distinction between true and false worship is given to us in Genesis. You may want to put a finger there, Genesis chapter 4, because, of course, that is where the story of of, uh, Abel is found. Genesis chapter 4, beginning of verse 6, you kind of see, you begin to see the true nature of Abel's worship and the fraudulent nature of Cain's worship, right? After the countenance of Cain had fallen or was falling, God told Cain this. He says, the Lord said to Cain, Genesis 4, 6, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when They were in a field. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, of course, ultimately, all of Cain's false motives came out. Not only was Cain a religious hypocrite, he was ultimately overcome by his bloodlust, his greed, his envy, his jealousy, so that he ultimately murdered his brother. And Scripture makes it crystal clear why he did that. He did that because he persecuted his brother for righteousness' sake. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. See, what happens is that by the time you get to the New Testament, Cain actually becomes something of a byword. You don't want to be associated with Cain. You don't want to have the attributes of Cain. You don't want to be described with language associated with Cain. 1 John three twelve. Not as Cain. We are to love, but not as Cain, who was the of the evil one. Notice that. Wow. Who slew his brother, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He could not tolerate true worship. Isn't that amazing? You try to follow God. What does Titus say? All those who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Just by virtue of your desire to want to be godly, your desire to want to have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, 
you are promised not only opposition, but persecution. Just because, just because Abel was righteous, his brother Cain was devoured by envy and ultimately murdered him. In Jude chapter, uh, verse 10, look at Jude. I just want to make you aware that the Bible is not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. But in the book of Jude, verse 10, listen to what this says. But these men, referring to false teachers, verse 4, those who have crept into the church and um, are seeking to undermine the church, to, to pervert the faith. These false teachers, listen to what he says, these men revile the things which they do not understand. Teachers are always ignorant of the things they're teaching. False teachers. False teachers are always ultimately, finally ignorant of the very things that they don't understand, they're, that they're teaching, which they don't understand. And the things which they know by instinct. Watch this now. Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Uh, another translation would be like irrational beasts, unreasoning animals. Isn't that an amazing description of a false teacher? When's the last time you picked up a book on apologetics and uh, that was talking about a false teacher and the author of the apologetics book refers to the false teachers as unreasoning animals, irrational beasts? B- because that is what they are. They are beyond they're beyond reason. You cannot reason. Some of these false teachers, they get to the point, they're so irrational, there is literally no talking to them. They are so entrenched and they are so obsessed with their desire to distort the truth that they become animal-like. That's why we are not to partner at all with false teaching at all. Matter of fact, a parallel passage to Jude is in Second John where we are not even to give false teachers a greeting or let them into your house. Now, there's a huge debate on what that means because I've had Jehovah Witnesses at my house. I've brought them in, offered something to drink, you know, open up the books and let's get to it. You know what I mean? Am I violating that principle? No, I think and the commentators seem to suggest that what it's saying is, is, is don't give them, because it also says don't give them a blessing, which means do not affirm them in any way and do not give them a platform for them to spread their lies in your home. How much more in the ministry or in the church? This is why it disturbs me beyond belief to hear somebody as popular in evangelicalism as Rick Warren referring to the Pope as his Pope. <laughs> Do people just wake up in the morning and decide to lose their mind? Or is it just that there's something more sinister at work there? You know, I don't like the fact that we had a huge evangelical rally in D.C. where the Pope was piped in to bless the meeting and to pray with his evangelical brethren. That is false fire, false worship. Ecumenicalism is always a sign of compromise, always. I I don't want to, you know, this is a pastor's uh, pet peeve here, so I don't want to make it just about that. But again, we're talking about purity of worship. How do we strip away all of the impurity in worship? How do we do that? God commends Sincerity. He knows if our hearts are sincere. God also commends sacrificial worship. Genesis 4-4. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock 
and of their fat portions. And this is the most important part of the whole narrative in Genesis for Abel. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. That's the most important part. Worship that became acceptable to God. In other words, Abel took the choicest part of his livestock, his income, his well-being, his fruit, the fruit of his hand, the labor of his hand, and apparently with, with a righteous heart full of good motive, motives and motivation. Not begrudgingly, but as Paul says, with a cheerful heart, he gives to the Lord. He offers to the Lord. All of it done with a sincere heart. All of it done for God's glory. All of it done out of obedience to God because it was in keeping with what God had commanded. And all of it done by faith, knowing that the Creator, just a couple chapters beforehand, the Creator had the power to take care of Him. Now the application is so simple. Do we believe that the Creator of all things will take care of us? And is that reflected in the sacrificial way in which we give to God? Um, sacrificial worship can be seen in the fact that you and I are willing to count the cost of discipleship. That's one. Knowing that as Jesus said, unless you carry your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. It's going, brothers and sisters, I say this before, I'll say it again, it has to cost us something to follow Christ. It will cost you something. It may cost you a marriage. It may cost, I've had people come up to me afterwards when I've made statements like that, and I'm just referring to passages like Luke 12 and other places where Jesus said, I come to bring division into a home, dividing a family amongst itself, a marriage, father, son, daughter, mother-in-law against each other. Don't think that I came to bring peace to, to earth. Quite the opposite, Jesus says, I come to bring division, a sword. Wow. Wow. And I've had people come up to me and say that after I preached a sermon about their marriage being divided by Christ, people have in fact divided. I mean, that wasn't designed by me, folks. That was just God doing His work and reflecting exactly what's taught in Scripture. The cost of discipleship is a big one. Sacrificial worship is also, like I said, seen in our giving. Like the Macedonians in Second Corinthians chapter 8, the Macedonians, it says, out of the depth of their poverty... They gave a wealth of generosity. Isn't that amazing? They were not able, it says, even beyond their means. They weren't even able to do this. And somehow, these Macedonians became a stalwart for generosity in the churches. An example to follow, that we can follow in. The last thing is God commands purity in worship. You think that Abel understood the difference between true worship and false worship? You better believe it. If there's true worship, you better, you better believe you're gonna know what false worship is. Abel was not therefore antinomian. He understood God's commands. He wanted to do everything as it was regulated by the Word of God. Now, to be very clear, you and I are no longer, we no longer have access to a theophany. We have no lo- we no longer have access, in other words, to God either appearing to us or speaking out loud to us. 
I've had people that have told me both. Had a lady once tell me, God shows up in my living room every day. I talk to him just like I'm talking to you. (laughs) And in a very awkward moment, um, I had to muster up the courage to say, ma'am, no, you don't. And I know that you may not like me to say that, but I cannot allow you to be here in the context of a Bible study. And she's going around talking about how God appears to her and talks to her in her living room. Well, we don't have access to a theophany. What do we have access to? To know that our worship is pure. What do we have access to? Scripture. We may not have the audible word of God, but we have the inscripturated word of God. And we know, according to the word of God, what is true worship and what is not. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to First, uh, First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. Just so that you can see that God is actually concerned about the purity of the church's worship. God cares how we live in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Church conduct. God cares about church conduct. I care about church conduct. As a pastor, I care about the reverence of the church, the standards of the church. The reason I don't preach in jeans and a t-shirt is because I made a decision long ago that when I come to preach at the pulpit, I, I want to bring some level of reverence, some level of professionalism. It's not a bad word. Some level of excellence, some level of, of sobriety. I mean, even the sports analysis on ESPN, they come to do their job and it's a serious job. They're not up there in their flip-flops. They're up there in executive suits Because they know that what they want to portray is not some sort of glib, sort of loose and lackadaisical attitude. They want to reflect sobriety. They want to, they want to make sure people know that they're trying to communicate something serious, something technical, something sober, something that, you know, has to do with money and how much more the kingdom of God? I'm not saying we all have to run out and get $500 suits. Please don't believe, don't, don't go there. But I am saying that we need to be sober, reverent, and we need to be, we need to have a high view of what church is. That church is not you being invited to your couch so that you can just sort of, you know, veg out like you do on your couch in your pajamas. Thank you for not wearing your pajamas to Sunday church. But you know what I mean? I, I have a love for the reverent. I, I want to build a reverent atmosphere in our church. And I have so much to say about that. And we will get to that because actually, uh, turn with me to back to Hebrews. But you will see this even in the book of Hebrews. You will see it right here. He will remind us of this. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, says it right here. What is fitting? What is right? What is appropriate? What is dignified? What is mature? What is grown up? I saw a pastor who was preaching in a 
Mickey Mouse t-shirt. I thought, I think I'll take him about as serious as Mickey Mouse. No thanks. Verse 28. Therefore, we, we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Last point. What is true worship? What is a mark of true worship? What is a mark of true godliness? We can just extend it a little bit. Third is that it leaves a legacy for the church. You see what the author here is saying. Back to Hebrews and the example of Abel. Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. It's amazing. Remember that we are to leave a legacy. Look at uh, Hebrews 13, verse 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Kind of a similar parallel idea. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Small groups, I don't know if you were at small groups this week. One of the things I did with the small group uh, this week is, um, this past Wednesday, is I talked to them about having a, having um, heroes in the Bible, in a sense, right? And I was convicted by this myself, and this is probably why I brought it out. But but is there someone in the Bible, and I challenge you to do the same thing, right? Is there someone in the Bible, Old or New Testament, that you look at and you say, I'm going to master this person in Scripture, whether it's David, whether it's Sarah, whether it's whether it's Ruth, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's uh, the Apostle John, whether it's the Apostle Paul, whether it's Abraham. I told my wife that I would like to go into a season where I become a scholar on the life of Abraham. I want to master Abraham's life. I want to know it inside and out, this juggernaut of biblical revelation. Abraham, that God founded the covenant of Abraham, of which you and I are both the fruit. Do you have a hero in the Bible, someone you want to master? Know them inside and out. I guarantee you it's so beneficial Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Once again, to show you, in my Bible software, mention this as well to my small group, in my Bible software, I have one of the most amazing, um, one of the most amazing features in my Logos software. It's called a passage list. Now listen to this, because I'm not lying. This is, this is, uh, this is one of the reasons why Bible software is so powerful. I can take a book in my Bible software, like an encyclopedia, something real dense, something real complicated, and I can highlight the whole article. Let's say a encyclopedia, I'm looking up Abraham. And I want to highlight the entire article, and I can ask a program called a passage list to extract all the verses out of that encyclopedia on that section. And so what it'll do is it'll dump all the verses onto one page. And then I can push another button and it'll sort them uh, from Genesis to Revelation if I want. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I have a... Yeah, I get excited about this. I have a, uh, I have a passage list that I call the principle of imitation. 
And in that passage list, I have extracted all the verses I can find on various levels of imitation. Imitating Christ, imitating Paul, imitating one another, imitating the example of Israel, imitating, you know, uh, other godly people in your life. All the different imitation passages and principles in the Bible, and I just have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of passages dealing, maybe not hundreds and hundreds, but maybe a hundred, more than a hundred, I would say, passages on this issue of imitation. It's big time in the Bible. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This is one of the main ones. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now watch this now. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these and the God of peace will be with you. What a glorious promise of the principle of imitation. You mean that as as I study Paul, or as I study Abraham, or as I study Abel, as I study the men and women of old, as I learn from them, as I as, as I just literally suck out all the nutrients out of their godly example, you mean the God of peace will be with me, which is to say this, you will have peace. You will have a peaceful, spiritual life because you are putting yourself into that same redemptive stream that these men and women of faith were in. Just glorious. Abel is worthy of our imitation. Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks to us. And... He speaks to every generation that ever lived after Abel, the prophet, was murdered, was martyred. Because he was persecuted, remember, for his righteousness, First John. Why did he kill him? Because he was righteous. And Cain was evil. So what is it about Abel, finally and ultimately, what is it? It is faith and it is that simple. But what is the object of the faith? What is the substance of his faith? So what I want to do in closing is take you to Hebrews 11 and 10. So we're looking at Hebrews 11, Hebrews 10, and I want to, I want to help you finish the sentence. Follow Abel's example of faith in Well, we can say in God, in Christ, in heaven, in the Bible, in salvation, in grace. We can put all sorts of things in there. But the operative word that I want to plug in there is the word promise. Promise. First of all, Abel. Look at the Hebrews 11.13. Abel is part of this list. All of these, that's men and women, All of them died in faith, meaning they died believing and in a state of faith, without receiving the promises, but having, watch this, seen them. You see that? They, with the eye of faith, they saw the promises far away, and they welcomed them from a distance. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. In other words, the the country they're seeking is the country 
that was promised to them. Uh, turn to the end of Hebrews 11. Same idea. Same idea. Hebrews 11.39 says, All these men and women of old, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You see that? Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, it wouldn't be until the new covenant came that both new and old covenant believers would be unified in Christ, glorified and ultimately uh, 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 brought to consummation to inherit the promises. Now let's, let's tie in a, maybe a closer exegetical connection. Hebrews 10. Remember I told you 11 and 10? Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Because remember, what gave birth to this incredible chapter in Hebrews anyway? Why did the author give us Hebrews 11? Well, it comes on the heels of what is put upon us, the expectation laid upon us in chapter 10. Beginning in verse 35. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. That's the promise. (laughs) For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, like Abel, like Noah, like Enoch, like Abraham, like Sarah, like David, like all the, like Moses, Like the prophets, when you have done the will of God, watch this, you may receive what was promised. The essence of our faith is in the promise, the promise of God to get us there. It's Olympic season. Anybody follow the Olympics? I'm fascinated by I gotta be careful because I can literally get obsessed over the Olympics. I'm like, especially gymnastics, right? It's like gymnastics. I love gymnastics. And I'm fascinated that those people can twirl around like that and land back on a dime. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Think about gymnastics. This is a biblical metaphor. Stay with me. I didn't just get seeker sensitive, okay? This is a biblical <laughs> metaphor right here. Think about the Discipline. I like when they go into the story of the athletes and they go back into the background and they do these little five, ten minute documentaries of what brought them there and how they lost a loved one and how they overcame injury, how they overcame adversity, how there was no chance they were going to make it and somehow they qualified and they got on the Olympic team and all of a sudden here they are in Rio trying to survive Zika and everything else. Did you hear about Rio that police showed up at the airport when the athletes came pouring in the police with signs saying we cannot protect you (laughs) anyway these athletes have a lot to overcome (laughs) the finish line is going to be getting out of there (laughs) but just think about these athletes what they have to overcome the hours and hours of discipline that goes into this the 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 adversity that they have to overcome i just watched a Terrific accident and a gymnast has literally snapped his leg in half in the midst of that. That's after having come back from a devastating injury already. Just the adversity. And you know that guy is going to try to make a comeback. 
Think about the endurance, what they have to endure, all the way to the end, the long haul. This is where I'm fascinated with the swimmers. The swimmers, and they go on that last lap, and you're just thinking, how in the world are they still going? So let's close with this. First Corinthians. I know I've said we're going to close about three times, but i got to give you this. First Corinthians chapter 9 beginning in verse 24, because this is what real faith looks like. This is what our faith looks like. Faith in the promises and enduring by faith in the promises does not just look like hanging out and kicking back and reading a nice book. It's hard work. It's discipline. It's adversity. It's endurance. It's running. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Think of the mental, physical discipline it takes for these athletes to compete. They they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. Oh, I love this. Don't you love... The gospel, right? The gospel, because it, it, it makes everything that we're doing in Christ, in Christianity, right? Everything is a metaphor for us, right? We Everything serves our purpose in Christ. It's amazing. But we, for an imperishable, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. Do you have aim in your Christian walk or are you aimless? It's a very, very important question. Living in light of the promises does not mean that you're just passively waiting around for the promise to happen. Living in light of the promise doesn't just mean that you're just kicking back and just see what happens. No! Living in light of the promise, we're going to see person after person after person. They didn't live in inactive faith. Their faith wasn't stagnant. It wasn't lazy. It wasn't just sort of kicking back and seeing what happens in their life. No, they were pursuing the things of God. They were pursuing. I do not run aimlessly. I box in such a way as as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In other words, If you fail to endure to the end of the race, you will be disqualified, which is a reference to apostasy. Apostasy. Let's pray together. Father, I want to lift up every person in here in Christ and ask that you would strengthen and that you would infuse them with a sense of urgency so that we might do what Paul says in Ephesians to do, that we would redeem the time. 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 It's so precious. It's so quick. It's slipping away every moment. Help us to then redeem Redeem the time, especially those of us that know a lot about what it means that we had sufficient time that we lived in the lust of the flesh. We want to redeem that time. Help us, Lord, 
to kick it in gear, to be a spiritual athlete for the kingdom of God so that we could bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We know that you are glorified by this. In Jesus' name, amen.